We'll see that if you turn to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 2. We come today to one of my favorite subjects, in fact, one of the most important of all the doctrines, and that is the doctrine of the love of God. Eric Fromm wrote a book once called The Art of Loving. It's a classic, well worth reading. He said that the art of love first depends on experiencing the heart of love. The art of love that we've been talking about in Ephesians, uh, Revelation 2, whether speaking the truth in love or being motivated by love, depends, we're going to see today, on experiencing the heart of love. And just what is that? Well, it's to know deep down in your heart that you are loved unconditionally. Here's what he said. He said, unconditional love corresponds to the deepest longing, not only of the child, but of every human being. To be loved conditionally because of one's own merit or because one deserves it or because of what one does always leaves doubt. There is always a fear that it will disappear. Love that is deserved provokes the bitter feeling that you are not loved for yourself, that you are loved only because you please, because you perform, because you posture and pose for their applause. It empties you and you feel used, not loved. But unconditional love fills us to overflowing. It corresponds to the deepest longing of the child that's in us all, of children of the Heavenly Father who made us to be in his arms. We saw that when it came to the church at Ephesus, Christ said that the heart of their problem was this. It was truth without love, which ultimately has to do with our manner in which we speak, and labor without love, which has to do ultimately with our motives, as we saw last week. And then he plums, after having focused on that, to the heart of true Christianity. We've been seeing in this uh, first epistle to the churches at the end of the Bible in Revelation that Christ reminds us of first things in this first letter. And today we come to the first of all first things, and that is our first love. Again, we've been seeing that the problem, as you'll see in your notes, the problem was truth without love and labor without love. And it happened because according to verse 4, they had left their first love. The problem, Roman numeral 1 in your notes, is very simply our love or lack thereof. And today we come to the solution, Roman numeral 2, which is very simply his love. Dear Jesus, I have a problem. It's me. Dear child, I have the solution. It's me. That's it. His love. Because the heart of our first love is his love for us. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. And it all springs from that. And how do you get back to that first love? Well, it's all in verse 5. Where Christ says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds that you did at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Three simple things. First, point A, remember, and you can fill in the blanks, remember your foremost passion. And as we go through this, we need to pray, teach me to love thee as thou the angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame. Remember your foremost passion. Remember your first love. What's to remember where they've fallen from? Well, we know that from Paul's letter to this same church, the church at Ephesus, which he had written 30 years earlier before Christ wrote his letter to the church. If you turn there, to, if you turn to 1 Ephesians, you might say, 
though we never call it that, but really, you know, just like there's a First and Second Corinthians and a First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, there's also a First and Second Ephesians, two letters which just as much as the others need to be read together to really understand them. First Ephesians, the one that comes after Galatians, divides exactly in half, as you, many of you know. Uh, three chapters of doctrine followed by three chapters of uh, application. And at the end of chapter 3, uh, as Paul transitions from the doctrine to the application, he sums up all the, uh, the, the, the application of all that doctrine that we've heard in the first three chapters. He sums it up, not doctrinally, but devotionally. In terms of our first love. He says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that you, as a result of it all, here's the whole point of the prayer, being rooted and grounded in what? Love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? Of the love of Christ that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's the Christian life. To be filled with all the fullness of God is how Paul summarizes the whole of the Christian walk. The fullness of all we uh, do and say. So if that's the spring... What's, you know, the wellspring? He's saying for that to happen, for it not just to be the, the fullness of me, you know, as a Pharisee and all my glory, which is the problem with the Ephesians, though they knew this book of First Ephesians well, to be filled up with all the fullness of him and all his glory. Our action needs to be the overflow of our devotion as our deepest motivation, our foremost passion, the devotion that comes from connecting with our first love, with his compassion. That's the solution to the pharisaical condition, to be rooted and grounded in his love. What comes out of us, it's the heart of all true Christianity, our words and our deeds, is to well up from making live contact with the love of God that's within us. Last week we ended with our side of it on how he wants us to be impelled by our love for him and all we do which can only send us to our knees as we saw looking at our true motives which is too often not our love for him. Today it's time to look at his side of it on how our love for him comes from knowing his love for us. That we might be filled up to all the fullness of God from the inside out starting with our motives. Christ slices to the heart of the Christian faith here in his letter to the church at Ephesus, as Paul does in his letter to the church at Ephesus. One great 19th century preacher put it this way, our great Christian faith exists not merely to order our conduct aright. That was the Ephesian problem. It's all externals. But they help us believe that God is love. The greatest mistake we can make is to refuse to let ourselves be loved by God. A child is a healthy child, not when it has no faults, but when it knows the security of great love from father and mother. So we are healthy children when we know ourselves to be surrounded by the love of the heavenly father. 
We shall err and we shall sin and we shall doubt. But if we come back again and again to Jesus Christ as the sure sign of the Father's love, we shall live with an inward center that is like a well. This is right out of Ephesians 3. That is like a well, one that is ever being drawn on and one that ever keeps filling up to overflowing. So how are we loved? Well, let's start with Paul's cue here. He sums up God's love by talking about, as we've read, the breadth and length and height and depth of it. And what does that mean? Well, it says in Psalm 36, 5, that thy loving kindness extends to the heavens. That is, it fills the earth and shines through the whole creation. Can't get away from it. It's like one pastor, Cecil Cecil Osborne, experienced after preparing a sermon on the love of God, as we saw a few weeks ago. He said for some reason he prepared this sermon and he decided to walk to church rather than drive, as he usually did, after a week of immersing himself in this. And he said, when I opened the front door of our house, it happened. I walked out into a world that I had never seen before. The familiar things were there as usual, but they were all different. Clothed in a radiance and beauty beyond description. The grass was so green against the rich dark earth. The trees were silhouetted against a deep blue sky. And I became part of the whole, and it embraced me. And suddenly I knew what it was. It was the love of God. Because God is in everything, and everything is in God. And God is love, and the whole world is a vast system of love. Why? Well, it's what Paul said. It's the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. It's because of this that we cannot flee from his presence, Psalm 139.7. That is, you're never alone. It's because of this in him we live and move and have our very being, as Paul said in Acts 17.28. So when you're falling apart, he'll keep you together because he's your being down to your very atoms. It's what so many of the writers of Scripture said. The breadth and length and height and depth of his love. And what is every, you know, every cubic inch of that love like? Well, the scripture says he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and compassion, Exodus 34, 6, which means he doesn't get angry for no reason. And you'll never have to wonder when the other shoe is going to drop, like maybe you did with your father. You'll never have to fear that he'll nail you in some totally unexpected way. The scripture says, Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 23, 6. The literal translation is, Goodness and loving kindness will pursue me. It will chase after me all the days of my life. Which means that it doesn't depend on your doing everything to keep the relationship going. And it's always your initiative and never theirs. And it seems like they never care enough to call or that they've given up on you. No, it's not that way with him. The scripture says loving kindness and truth have met together in him. Psalm 85.10. Truth in love. Which means you'll never have to wonder uh, where he's coming from in what he's saying. He'll never lie to you, never deceive you, never use you. No hidden agendas. No wondering what he's really thinking. The scripture says his loving kindness is new every morning, every cubic inch of it in which we live and move and have our being. 
Lamentations 3.23. And that's because, as Solomon says in the Song of Solomon, God's love is like it is when we fall in love. When we fall in love, he says, it's the very flame of the Lord. Song of Solomon 8.6. And so his love, on his side, is always like it is when we fall in love. He never tires of you. Never stops telling you the, the, in new ways what you mean to him. Never takes you for granted. It says in Romans 8 that his love, famous verse, works all things together for good. And so it ultimately doesn't even matter what happens to you. Whether, as Paul says, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Because in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who what? Loved us. Romans 8.37, who works all things to a greater good, a greater glory of being conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29, to shine brighter for all eternity. Through it all, there's an invisible hand working it all for good because God is good all the time in his love. William Barclay called it unconquerable benevolence. And under it all, Best of all, it means that unlike any other love, his love will never end because his loving kindness is everlasting and he will never fail you and never leave you, never forsake you, and he will get you through. This is the most frequent phrase of praise in Scripture. Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is thy faithfulness. Really, if you think about it, it's, the, it's perfect love. It's the perfect love, as my mother titled one of her books. Subtitled, Intensely Personal, Overflowing, Never Ending. It's unending, unceasing, everlasting, which means it's not conditional. And so it corresponds to the deepest longing that's in the child in us all, the child who wants to be loved not because of their own merit or because he deserves it or because of what he or she does, which can only leave doubt and the fear that it will disappear. Oh no, there is no reason whatsoever for God's everlasting love except the eternal and unchanging will of God. It's not our will, it's his. No other reason than that God is love. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, one of my favorites, he was a contemporary of Spurgeon. He put it this way, there is no reason whatsoever for God's love except God's will. We love because of some attraction in the object on which our love falls, either by kindred or by character or by visible form. God loves because he will not deny himself. God loves because he is God. Our love is drawn out, it is pulled out by the application of external causes. His love bursts out, self-originated, undeserved. It comes spontaneously, driven by its own fullness, welling up, unasked, unprompted, unmerited, and therefore never to be turned away by our evil, never to be wearied by our indifference, never to be brushed aside by our negligence. It is the fixed, eternal, unalterable center of the divine nature. Amen? Amen. 
And to think that all that is just scratching the surface. You can't exhaust it. You can't even begin to write it out, which was a tremendous frustration for my mother. She wrote numerous books on God's love, and by the time she almost passed away, she said, I haven't even begun. God knows she tried to write it out, but she felt like the hymn, The Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, uh, made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong. It will forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. You want to be filled up to all the fullness of God? Our first duty, if you want to call it that, is to remember our first love. Not just in a doctrinal way, but in a devotional way. Not just in an an intellectual way, but in a relational way. To remember his love, not just with all your mind, but with all your heart. It's kind of like what my mother did in another book she wrote called The Satisfied Heart, 31 Days of Experiencing God's Love. The chapter titles, the day titles for each of the 31 days are both doctrinal and devotional. She marries the two. They marry the head and the heart and in a way that helps us do it too. They're good for, you know, for Ephesian Christians like I tend to be who have well-developed heads but too often underdeveloped hearts. Just listen just to the titles. Day two, he can more than satisfy me. This comes from the doctrine she talks about leading up to this in day two. Day three, the Lord is all I need. Day four, I am God's eternal longings coming true. Day five, his love for me is intensely personal. Day seven, I am his treasure. Day nine, he draws me near in all my joys and trials. Day 13, everything about him says something about me. Day 14, he is altogether desirable. Day 15, he is my champion. Day 16, he soars to my help. On and on, I don't have time to read. Day 31, title of the book, he satisfies my heart. And so first, point A in your notes. Verse 5a, remember your first passion. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then he goes on to say, point B, repent. And you can fill in the blank in your notes, repent as your fundamental discipline. Which means simply to realize that you don't deserve it and that I don't live up to it and to fall down because of it on your face before him. Just look at what he did for your sake and compare that to what you're doing in his name perhaps, but too often it's not really for his sake. Just look at how you know, hot he is for you, totally smitten, falling in love all the time, and how cold you are for him by comparison. Just look at what he's done for you and compare that to what you've done for him. Just look, look, look at the scattered uh, scrawls of your love for him and then imagine his love written across the sky, draining the ocean dry. And it'll send you to your knees in a good way. 
which as we've seen is the fundamental discipline of the Christian walk. Like John at the end of Revelation 1, to come to him with nothing but our depravity, our need, and to be filled then to overflowing with his mercy, his sufficiency, his charity. Which leads us to Christ's final point. A, remember your first passion. Two, repent as your fundamental discipline. And then three, respond with your fervent, and you can fill in the blank, action. Again, verse 5, do the deeds that you did at first as a response to all of this. The church at Ephesus, as we've seen, had already been doing all the right things. But they were doing it for the wrong reasons, in his name, but not really for his sake. So in that context, what he's saying here is this. Do your deeds in the way you did them at first. And that is out of love. Remember and repent as a way of life and then just do it. Respond. Obey him in what you do and say. And more and more, it'll happen again like it did at first. That happens in our devotions. That happens as we come to church and learn of it. It's a steady progression in this direction. And under it all, the bottom line application is this. As we get, you know, the cookies on the lowest shelf, which I need. It's what we're doing when we're repenting. It's one of the most important ways of responding. It's something that becomes obvious if we take our cue from what Christ says here in Second uh, Ephesians and uh, from what Paul says in First Ephesians. And it's obvious if you look at the rest of Scripture. The bottom line application here when it comes to connecting with his love is fervent prayer. And especially prayerful worship. Mind you, it's not how you earn his love. He doesn't love me or anyone else anymore based on how we pray. It's it's not how you make him love you more. As someone said, he cannot love more, he will not love less. That's settled. Prayer is not how you earn his love, but it is a good part of how we encounter his love. How we make live contact with him in a subtle but powerful way that brings his spirit inexorably, uh, incrementally, but inexorably through us into our life. Fervent prayer is like this intensifier. It's an intensifier of so much. You want to know one of the most important secrets of fervent sermons? It's fervent prayer. A fervent love, fervent prayer. Of a fervent life, fervent prayer. Of uh, the secret of his fullness, your prayerfulness. If you think about it, the first deeds that Christ was talking about with the Ephesians all came from the first of all their first deeds, and that is the first deed of their first prayer, the sinner's prayer, right? And it all flowed out of that. Our first deed was the sinner's prayer, and it all flowed out of that. And we've seen that this is now our fundamental discipline, our fundamental action. As Christ said, getting back to our first love requires repenting, coming to him in our brokenness in fervent prayer. And in Ephesians, when Paul talked about being rooted and grounded in love, I don't know if you noticed, but it's a fervent prayer. This I pray, he said. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that you may come to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ. He prayed this for them because he knew it happens when we pray. And so I've asked this for you almost daily since we've come. 
because abiding in his love is among our highest priorities. So pray Ephesians 3. But it's not just prayers of supplication like Paul's here in Ephesians 3 um, that make the connection or prayers of confession Confession, prayers of conviction, which we lift up again and again as our fundamental discipline, but prayers of adoration, prayers of communion. Like David prayed when he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. That's a man connecting with God's love. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Uh, the, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and delivered from all my enemies. The psalmists are all over this. They guide our hearts to him through worshipful prayer. Whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73, 25. And beside you I desire nothing on earth. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 64, 7. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 18, 1. God gets the cookies on the lowest shelf in the Psalms, and all we have to do is just piggyback on them, right? The vast majority of you do. Piggyback on worship songs or on hymns and spiritual songs, which Julie loves to listen to in our devotions, as many of you do too, or in your car or at home all day long. You can let the music play, or you can piggyback on the prayers of saints down through the years. I've already read the chapter titles of uh, The Satisfied Heart, 31 Days of Experiencing God's Love. Each chapter is a meditation on God's love that grounds us in what he says in his word. And then we respond to his love and we experience it by what we say through prayer. That's the end of each uh, day. Because as we saw last time, what he really wants, what we're really talking about, connecting with his love, is a relationship between the two of us and for it to all flow out of that. So I thought I'd close today by by enjoying some cookies ourselves. By way of application, let's practice. Let's connect with our first love through the first deed of fervent prayer. And if you're led, you might want to close your eyes and bow your heads as we practice together. Day one, the title is, I Must Have Love. It ends, uh, I Must Have Love. And she first gets into the word, and then it ends with this. Dear Lord, I thank you that I am yours that you know me through and through, and that it's no accident that you've led me to this book. Father, I've tasted your love, and I long to experience more deeply how you feel about me. I long to know in my daily life the intense reality and great wonder of your boundless love, which you so freely bestow on those who seek you. Help me turn away from my misconceptions of your love and from being casual or indifferent towards you. Help me to turn from hectic, frantic activity that often makes even my time with you so hurried. I ask that through your word you will speak to me of your perfect love in powerful, life-changing ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue. Day two. Titled, He Can More Than Satisfy Me. First we hear from him through his word, and then we speak to him through prayer. Father, Thank you for the lasting intensity of your overflowing, never-ending love. 
Thank you that your love is utterly reliable and delightful, that it is so much better than anything I could imagine or hope for in life. I praise you, Lord, that you are so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful, that you can meet the overflow, you can meet and overflow the deepest needs of my total nature, mysterious and deep as that nature is. Show me clearly and continually how to respond to you. Today and every day, enable me to direct my yearnings toward you, to come to you with my inner thirsts and drink. In Jesus' name, amen. Day three, the Lord is all I need. Father, I worship you because of who you are, a God who understands me and faithfully takes care of me, a God of intense and ardent affection for me that will last for all time and eternity. I praise you that for every need of my heart and every situation in my life, there is something in you that can meet my deepest need and that you are here with me to do so. I pray that your love will dawn on me undimmed so that I may rejoice and be glad in you. And may my roots go deeper and deeper into the soil of your marvelous love. Day by day, hour by hour, fill me with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. On and on it goes. And the bottom line is this. It's on the back cover of the perfect love. Most people, even those with a deep faith, fail to really grasp the incredibly deep and passionate love God has for them. Yet while God's love for us is beyond description, it doesn't have to be beyond experience. Amen. This was my mother's life message. She led millions, literally the world over, through her books and her talks and scores of nations into the first of all first things, into a deeper experience of God's love, supremely through the first deed of fervent prayer. In fact, her life verse was a prayer of adoration. I preached on it at her memorial service. You've already heard it. Whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73, 25. And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. That's the core, the heart and soul of the Christian faith. I wish you could hear her teach on this. But she's gone now. So, next week you'll hear the second best thing. It'll be a very distant second, but it'll be better than nothing. And that is, through her son, you'll hear one of her messages on the love of God. Now, mind you, I I did not get her permission, which we generally need to do, if at all possible. But I guarantee you, she wouldn't mind. 